Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the vascular portion of Behind the Knife. My name is Frank Davis, and I'm a Chief Integrated Vascular Surgery Resident here at the University of Michigan. I'm here, uh, Craig Brown, I'm a PGY6 in General Surgery at the University of Michigan, and I'm here with Nick. I'm uh, Nick Osborne. I'm an Associate Professor of Vascular Surgery at the University of Michigan, and uh, we are your vascular surgery team here to talk about PAD uh, and acronym SOUP. Uh, you know, PAD is a complex topic and and we could take a million hours to talk about it but we're going to try and specifically this time kind of distill down some of the kind of nuts and bolts of some of the different guidelines that are out there there's a million acronyms that you're going to see with peripheral artery disease and so we're going to try and wrap your heads around a couple of those so that it makes it a little bit more approachable and not as scary when you start hearing us talking about things like task and wi-fi and glass and so uh, we're going to get started so um, we'll make sure as we kind of go through these things, if you want to reference them, that we give you a um, link to the guidelines in the show notes. Um, and they're good reading uh, to get through, especially if you're going to be going on to either a vascular rotation or um, getting ready to take an exam. All right. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Nick mentioned uh, a bunch of guidelines. I think the roadmap for today is going to be based on this really awesome document called the Global Vascular Guidelines for Peripheral Vascular Disease. So um, it turns out that um, in 2013, there there are kind of a, a couple of big uh, vascular surgery societies across the world. So we have the Society for Vascular Surgery the European Society for Vascular Surgery, and then the World Federation for Vascular Societies. And it turns out that all those uh, groups got together, put their heads together and said, you know what, we need to have a unified approach to the uh, guideline management for vascular diseases. And so that resulted in uh, the global vascular guidelines for chronic limb-threatening ischemia. Uh, we've talked about uh, PAD a little bit, but basically peripheral arterial disease has been a lot of times in previous versions of the guidelines discussed in terms of either ankle brachial index criteria or uh, on, in the context of angiography results and kind of stenoses that we see on angiography. But the global vascular guidelines were really rewritten uh, recently because of the fact that the population is changing of patients that have lower extremity uh, chronic limb threatening ischemia. And it turns out that uh, contrary to years ago where smoking was the biggest risk factor and sort of drove the um, majority of the pathophysiology, now actually diabetes is the primary risk factor for low extremity ischemia. And that changes the way that we treat it and changes the way that we see this clinically. And so um, now the Global Vascular Guidelines, which again, we'll, we'll have a link to in the show notes. Everybody should read that. It's a really long document, but it's actually really good stuff. Um, they recommend that we... Uh, basically define chronic limb-threatening ischemia, or CLTI, in terms of both objective evidence of atherosclerotic disease, 
rest pain or tissue loss in the lower extremity, but they also uh, recommend the use of this thing called the lower extremity threatened limb classification system. And this incorporates information about a whole variety of things, um, but the sort of starting component of this classification system is something called the Wi-Fi classification system, uh, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit more detail. So really what this Wi-Fi classification system does is stratify patients' amputation risk based on the wound, which is the W, the degree of ischemia, and then the degree or the presence, the presence or the severity of a wound infection. Yeah, thanks, Craig. So I think it's important for the the Wi-Fi classification system that the the global vascular guidelines recognize is that it's important to note that a multitude of studies have investigated this classification system and have really shown that the Wi-Fi classification system are similar to like the TNM staging system for cancer. Um, so when we're approaching a patient with peripheral arterial disease and trying to gauge where do they fall on the spectrum of Wi-Fi classification for their wound, you kind of first start by assessing their wound specifically for the peripheral arterial disease. So a patient with no ulcer is considered to have like a grade zero wound. A patient um, has a small shallow ulcer um, on the distal of leg or foot with no exposed bone has a grade one. And then a grade two ulcer for the Wi-Fi classification system is a deep ulcer with exposed bone, joint, or tendon, but generally does not involve the heel. So that's kind of a separate aspect. This is more digital ulcers that we're looking at. And finally, a grade three ulcer is the highest grade in the Wi-Fi classification system for a wound. And it's an extensive deep ulcer that involves either the forefoot or midfoot, as well as a full thickness heel ulcer with or without calcaneal deep bone involvement. Now, the guidelines also include information regarding the involvement of gangrene and the amount of gangrene. You at least have to have a grade two wound if it involves any gangrene or of the forefoot or midfoot, and it's automatically a grade three with the wound when they have such deep gangrene. I think as I go through these kind of Wi-Fi classification systems for the wound, it's really important that we reference the document, and then table three in that document does a really great job of kind of specifying how you can go about grading a wound for the Wi-Fi classification system. Thanks, Frank. Um, you know, I think as we kind of go through these, it's obviously kind of confusing um, to hear all these different kind of acronyms and then hear about which grades they are. Uh, you know, what we're basically doing and what vascular surgery and the community has really done when they developed a score is they've really tried to standardize it because, you know, when I was in training, you know, you'd look at a wound and you say, that looks kind of bad. Um, and, you know, I think it might be to bone. And this is kind of trying to standardize it so that we can talk about it in a standard language, a standard nomenclature, and then have a standard kind of uh, kind of grade of what we think the potential outcomes are going to be. So Frank just talked about the W in the Wi-Fi score. I'm going to talk about the I in the Wi-Fi score. So the I in the Wi-Fi score corresponds to the ischemia grading criteria. And so it's just like the other one where you have grades zero through three. And so when we think about patients, grade zero would be an ABI greater than or equal to 0.8. So extremely kind of, uh, you know, very mild uh, ABI abnormality. Um, or it could also liken it to a systolic pressure greater than 100 millimeters mercury or a toe pressure uh, greater than 60 millimeters mercury on a, on a non-invasive study. If you think about kind of the next kind of worsening level of ischemias, it, once you kind of go up, it'll kind of gradually go up to grade three. Grade three ischemia is going to be the more severe ischemia, and this would be an ABI value of 0.4 or less, and that corresponds to an actual pressure of 50 or less or a toe pressure of 30 or less. And so when we think about kind of these scores, you're, you're really now at this point, we've given you the W, we're talking about 
you know, how big and deep is the wound? Does it involve bone? The eye, we're talking about how ischemic the wound is. And I'm going to turn it over to Craig for talking about the FI in Wi-Fi. Yeah. So, you know, Nick basically uh, went through the really the more objective of the three, which is, you know, these kind of criteria based on either ABIs or non-invasive studies. Um, And so, you know, the wound, I think, as Frank detailed, is an attempt to try to make this more objective. Uh, And so it turns out that the foot infection thing is is a very similar scenario. So as you guys have guessed, uh, I'm sure by now, the foot infection grade is similar to the other two, which means that there's a zero through three or four separate grades. Grade one is localized swelling or just in duration within two centimeters of the the ulcer. And this is basically just infection of the skin or subcutaneous tissues only. Grade two is obviously more severe and involves uh, kind of deeper tissues, including osteomyelitis and abscess, septic arthritis, fasciitis. Um, But the critical point here is that it doesn't have signs of systemic infection. And grade three is the most severe, and that's basically systemic infection, fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, leukocytosis. Uh, And when you put all the different grades together in the different combinations, you end up with a variety of clinical stages uh, one through four. And this is, I'm talking about the greater Wi-Fi score. So you kind of add up the grade of wound, the grade of ischemia, and the grade of foot infection. And you end up with uh, this set of, um, or stage similar to the TNM classification system. And it's really complicated. So I think all of us are recommending that you not try to memorize this thing similar to um, staging for cancers. But you can reference this table in the Global Vascular Guidelines to try to uh, separate people based on their risk of amputation. And we see that it increases with increasing stage. So um, this can be helpful for prognostication. It turns out that, uh, you know, it has uh, some uh, has there's pretty good data to show that it uh, tracks well with the actual amputation risk. Yeah, no, that's overall a great overview of kind of the Wi-Fi staging as well as disease severity for chronic limb threatened ischemia. And I think when you approach somebody with PAD, it's always important to kind of start with how severe their PAD. And as, as Craig appropriately mentioned, it also gives us a kind of a, a prediction value of based upon their wound, their ischemia and their infection, what might, is their likelihood for potentially progressing to an amputation within the upcoming months to years. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So, so now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more about anatomic classification so that we don't just linger on, you know, what is the patient's PAD and how bad their wound is, but how do we go about treating them? What can we provide for these patients to go about improving their uh, peripheral arterial disease and get them out of their current Wi-Fi classification system? So to, so to do that, I want to start by talking about the TAS classification. So the TAS system was initially published in 2000 as the Transatlantic Intersociety Consensus Guidelines for the Management of Peripheral Arterial Disease. Um, task 1, uh, published in 2000, was then revised to TASC uh, uh, in 2007. And finally, now we have the TASC 2 guidelines, um, which were developed to kind of guide surgical intervention for people with peripheral arterial disease. 
Now, it's important to recognize that the CAS guidelines have both um, algorithms for both aortic iliac occlusive disease as well as femoral popliteal disease. So you can use the TAS guidelines to kind of judge the severity of patients' atherosclerotic burden, both within these two different vascular beds. Um, so first and foremost, for the aortic iliac occlusive segment, the TAS guidelines separate the atherosclerotic disease burden into four kind of global classes, and that's class A through D. So in regards to class A, these are lesions that are usually unilateral or bilateral, but typically focus in the common iliac artery with stenoses, or bilateral short segment stenoses that are less than three centimeters in the external iliac. So kind of these are minimally narrowed vessels focused on either the common iliac or external. As the atherosclerotic disease burdens worsens, you could progress to a class B lesion or TAS B lesion within the aortic iliac segment. So these include stenoses that are less than three centimeters in the inferior aorta, the unilateral common iliac artery, or longer stenoses in the external iliac artery from three to 10 centimeters. Importantly, this does not involve uh, areas of stenosis within the common femoral artery. Beyond that, we then progress to TAS C lesions, which are even more complicated and basically involve bilateral common iliac artery occlusions or bilateral external iliac artery occlusions measuring between three and 10 centimeters in overall length. Finally, the worst part of um, atherosclerotic disease in the aortic iliac occlusive disease segments is the class D or TAS D lesions. And as you'd expect, these are the most severe individuals who have the most severe atherosclerotic burden. They involve either the aortic iliac segment with total aortic iliac occlusion, diffuse, diffuse stenoses throughout the iliac vessels, or multiple unilateral and bilateral external iliac artery occlusions. As you can expect, as you progress along the task A through task D lesions, these interventions become more difficult to treat from a minimally invasive endovascular approach and begin to push surgeons more towards an open surgical option when looking at how do I best treat these patients with peripheral arterial disease. All right. Thank you very much, Frank. Um, I think uh, people are probably getting a little overwhelmed thinking about how these are all staged. One thing I'm going to throw a lifeline out there to all you guys is that uh, there are apps available to be able to actually do all this and not memorize the numbers for all these things. So if you go on the SVS website, they have practice guidelines and there's actually a downloadable app that you can go through and you can, for any patient, you can input all these values and it'll spit out the scores. And so it's super helpful to have that, um, especially if you're seeing patients in clinic or you're rounding and you see a patient on the floor and you're going to go staff that patient. Um, I think it's super helpful. So we're going to kind of step forward from there and kind of move on from talking about what we talked about now is Wi-Fi and task. We're going to move on to the kind of this global document, which came out in 2019 called glass. And the glass is really the, um, you know, has been a, the culmination of kind of a lot of previous studies and papers that have been written about the management of PAD. And these are the global um, limb ischemia guidelines that were published um, uh, in JVS back in 2019. Now, the, the idea really behind this was to first give a nomenclature, which we've been going over to talk about this in a common language, talk about wounds, talk about the severity of PAD, and then to think about how after we talk about identifying these wounds using this Wi-Fi score, how do we talk about the optimal way to maximize blood flow and the chance of healing when we're talking about critical limb ischemia or chronic limb threatening ischemia and the new kind of nomenclature as we like to call it. And so really 
the idea of glass is number one, you identify the lesion, you identify um, how severe the wounds are on the foot. If there are wounds on the foot, are there, you know, is there ischemia and is there infection using Wi-Fi? And then from there, you have to think about how do we then move on to the best evidence-based revascularization procedures to preserve limb. And the way that the glass system really com talks about this is using the idea of a target arterial pathway. And this is kind of a little bit of a hedge of kind of the two schools of thought. One is you got to get maximized flow, inline flow to the foot um, using either the angiosome model, which talks about, you know, the preferred artery that's feeding that territory on the foot um, versus the other model, uh, which is the idea of maximizing flow onto the foot, regardless of which pathway it follows, whether that's a direct revascularization to the foot, um, you know, where you're doing a revascularization to the PT, which feeds into the pedal arch, or if you're doing a revascularization to the peroneal artery, which feeds through collaterals into the dorsalis pedis and feeds into the arch of the foot. Uh, in both cases, you can see limb salvage. And so um, with the glass system, it doesn't uh, specify which of those two kind of uh, ideas for revascularization is best, but it basically asks you to think about how are you going to best maximize blood flow down to the foot and to get this lesion to heal. And so really, what glass does is it takes this first concept of grading the wounds and it merges it with the second concept of optimizing blood flow and which is the best way to optimize blood flow. And it does this through a series of staging, not only for the wound, but also for the staging of the either the inguinal, infrainguinal segment of uh, disease or the femoral popliteal segment of disease. And also, you can also have both. Uh, and so it, it's a complex document when you read it, and you're going to see some very, very heavy tables in there. Um, but when at the end of the day, if you think about the overall kind of emphasis of this, it really is in, in trying to merge these two ideas so that we get to the idea of how we preserve limb uh, and how we maximize blood flow to get to that point. You know, I think when we approach uh, critical limb ischemia and chronic limb threatening ischemia. Uh, you know, it's it's a tough topic to um, tackle in a short period of time. There's a million different acronyms that we're using and then we've thrown out to you today. We've tried to dissect some of them. Um, at the end of the day, when we're thinking about treating peripheral artery disease, you know, we're all in the business of trying to figure out how do we keep that that foot? How do we minimize the chance of a major amputation? You know, and that really gets back to how do we know what the right thing to do is for the patients? Unfortunately, I think in PAD, um, you know, I think uh, what we've learned is that we really don't always know what the best answer is. And so just like we were just talking about with this idea of the angiosome model versus the uh, direct and indirect revascularization models for um, foot ischemia, we really don't know what the right thing to do is. Similarly, when we talk about endo versus open, we haven't even gotten into that whole debate of what the right thing to do is. There was a trial that we were conducting, the best CLI trial across the globe, really looking at this, that was a multidisciplinary trial and it enrolled over 1,800 patients, but unfortunately was uh, stopped prematurely below the enrollment goal of 2,100 patients. I'm still hopeful that with that number of patients, we're going to get some really valuable information and know how best we should treat patients. But right now where we're sitting, you know, we don't always know the right answer. We know what we want to do to, to prevent limb loss, but we don't always know how best to get there. And I think that's the, our, what our, the next generation is really going to be focused on is not only 
coming up with algorithms to kind of grade the system and to think about it in an objective manner and talk about it in an objective manner, but then to actually identify which treatment strategy is going to be the best strategy for these patients. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So, you know, I think that um, what Nick is getting at too, which was what that was the thought that I had when I was reading through this document is uh, as a trainee, you know, we're looking for guidance from these guidelines to help us understand treatment decisions and how these staging systems may relate to decisions around which particular technique or who, who would benefit from particular operations. And I think my takeaway, and I think Frank and, and Nick would agree, is that um, there's actually just a lack of data available to help guide us determining how these classification systems actually translate to best practice. And so I, the and the Global Vascular Guidelines uh, are a wonderful document. They do a great job of outlining these criteria. They do a great job of outlining the importance of talking about lower extremity disease in a systematic way so that we can have conversations in a multidisciplinary fashion. Certainly from a research perspective, there's utility in understanding the different classifications of disease so that we can you know, understand how the different diseases over time uh, are best managed. But right now, the global vascular guidelines have, uh, uh, there's a nice table in there that basically walks you through this process. And after you stage the disease, they end up with this box that says, uh, basically, if it's reconstructable, reconstruct it with your preferred strategy. And so there's very little guidance. And th this stems from, frankly, just a lack of data to guide us in terms of what is the preferred strategy. So, um, Nick, if you don't mind, do you have two minutes of guiding principles about decision making around, you know, what, like kind of what are the critical things to know with respect to decision making around either endovascular versus open or who would benefit from revascularization versus not uh, anything that you can glean? Yeah, you know, I think um, you know, PAD is a is a really humbling disease to treat because it it just always comes back, and in the end, you're not always going to win. Um, so, you know, what can we do to really kind of maximize the chances someone's not going to lose a leg is really the question you got to think about. And then it really comes down to you know what are your options for that patient? You got to be realistic with that patient. Some of these patients are coming in with chronic wounds on their feet, and they just are done with it, and they don't want any more time you know, dealing with wounds, dealing with dressing changes, dealing with the odors, um, you know, all these things play into it. Some of those patients might say, you know what, I, I, I'm ready for a major amputation. That's not the wrong thing to do for those patients. But you're going to have other patients come in who are dependent, whether they're walking five feet or whether they're walking 25 feet, they may both be just as dependent on that foot. And there's no reason that you shouldn't consider both those patients for limb salvage. And then it just comes down to how are you best going to try and create that, you know, create that opportunity for limb salvage and how do you best do it? it might be endo. It might be open. I think bypass is a wonderful thing and it's a great operation, but you got to pick it for the right patient. Um, and especially now, um, you know, I think with the opportunities with endovascular approaches, we know that there are times where endovascular approaches may um, open up the door to revascularization for some of these patients who you previously wouldn't have thought have been a candidate for a bypass because they may not have great flow into the foot. And an endovascular strategy may get them enough flow to heal where you may not have been as comfortable doing a bypass. Again, these come back to the same questions of, you know, what's the right thing to do? We really don't have the data in large randomized controlled trials to say what the right answer is in a lot of these cases. I like to approach it with patients in a discussion talking about it and saying, you know, understanding what their level uh, 
where they are on that spectrum of of limb loss, right? And how close they are to limb loss, I think really guides part of it. And then when you look at that patient, you think about how best to treat that patient, you kind of have to think, you know, are you going to go for broke? Are you going to do everything possible to try and save that foot? You know, I think that's a real question and, and it's a societal question that we're going to have to answer at some point because these interventions cost a lot of money. And I think when you get into limb salvage, you learn that it's a gift that keeps on giving and you may see that patient multiple times to keep that limb. Now, is it wrong if you see that patient multiple times in six months and they still have their foot at the end of the day? You know, that's a question where, you know, I think from a societal standpoint, we got to think about the benefit of that versus the cost um, up front of all those interventions versus the cost of someone losing their leg, losing independence, being in a nursing home, all these other downstream effects that we don't really uh, estimate very well. And so, you know, when you're seeing patients with this, I think you have to take a holistic view to start. Um, I would argue, always think big, think, what can I do to save this leg? And then kind of look back from there and, and think about what the strategies can be. You know, obviously a patient with terrible heart um, may not be a great open candidate. That doesn't mean they're not an endovascular candidate. Um, and then I think, you know, patients is, is the name of the game with PAD. You can't go into PAD rushed. You got to think about it carefully. And when you do your procedures, you got to be very intentional, very careful about it and take the right time to do a good, safe operation. And to, you know, if it's endovascular, not to give up early because some of these need persistence. All right. Well, I think the take home point for me there is that PAD is a humbling disease. I think anybody who's taking care of PAD patients knows that. Uh, and I have a ton of respect for the people that uh, are making it their life's work to let people keep their legs. So um, with that, I think we'll wrap up. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, for their attention, uh, and thank Nick and Frank for being on the call with me. And uh, we'll see you next time, guys. Dominate the day. Dominate the day. Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.